0: Tonight, we're going to take a look at Romans chapters one and not, not one and two, chapters three and four, rather. And um, the way I want to get at this tonight is the first thing out of the gate is I want to uh, show you a part of a webinar that was done a couple of years back when this uh, book, Reading Romans Backwards, was um, produced and the author Scott McKnight did a webinar explaining a little bit about his approach to this and I thought it was quite helpful and it's about 20 minutes long and then we're going to come back to Romans 3 and 4 and try to use the slides that are going to be on the screen. So next week what we're going to do is we're going to take a break from this study and we're going to move from the social hall up into the sanctuary and we want to do several Lent Wednesdays so that we can prep our heart. And there's some things that I'd like to do with the readings that we're going to do in the Unvarnished Jesus book. And um, and so I just felt it would be a nice atmosphere to be upstairs. And uh, I'll bring my guitar a couple of times. We'll sing a few songs. There'll be other times where we might take communion together. So I really want to use the next six weeks to kind of Uh, prep our hearts and our minds before Easter. And so that'll start next Wednesday, March 2nd at seven o'clock in the sanctuary. And then after we're done with that, we'll come back and we'll still have uh, chapters um, five through eight of Romans to uh, talk about. And so when we do that, we uh, will finish up this study. So uh, having said that, here's what we're going to do out of the gate. I'm going to show you a part of this webinar, and this is uh, not the best video. The audio is quite good, but um, I think it will help you to understand where I'm coming from in this approach that we're taking in Romans. So we've been reading kind of from the back forward and what we have done is we laid some groundwork to talk a little bit about who the audience is that Paul is writing to and then in this tough section in chapters one through chapter four there's some rhyme and reason to it if we keep the context in mind and I think that's what Scott McKnight does a good job uh, in this webinar and so Um, I will catch you on the other side of the webinar. If by chance you're having trouble hearing it or anything like that, please let me know and I'll uh, do my best to correct the problem. This is Scott McKnight. um, He's a professor at um, a school just outside of uh, Chicago, a seminary, and um, he has written a number of books. Uh, I think, in fact, Brenda, didn't you mention me, to me that you read the book, The Blue Parakeet? Was that, was that you? Yeah, well, he's the, author of, he's the author of that book as well. So now you'll be able to put a name and a face together. Okay, so here we go.
1: Okay, well, thanks Chaz. And thank you all the people who've taken the time to attend this webinar. Um, I grew up in a world where, uh, in a time when we didn't have webinar webinars, but uh, I'm grateful for them today. You're okay. Um, one of the things that I encountered when, when I have taught the Apostle Paul and when I have taught Romans, and one of the things I've encountered more commonly in talking with pastors, is a hesitance to preach through Romans and to talk about Romans. And part of this is because at one time, everybody understood Romans, it was very simple. Um, and then along came E.P. Sanders in 1977, who was then um, utilized by Professor James D.G. D. D. Dunn, my teacher. And I was there when he began to utilize E.P. Sanders and created and gave a famous lecture. He created what is called the New Perspective. Uh, Alongside of Jimmy Dunn or James D.G. Dunn doing that, uh, N.T. Wright was doing something similar. So those two scholars became connected to what's called the new perspective. Not long after this, after Sanders, after Dunn and Wright, uh, J.C. Becker applied um, some of the insights of Sanders But began to use theological categories called that is now called the apocalyptic approach And that gave another option for understanding Romans and this this made it three we have uh, What's often called the old or the reformation perspective? I tend to think of it as Augustinian Then there's the new perspective and then there's the apocalyptic approach Michael Gorman sort of combined all these into um what he calls the participationist approach and if you add to this african-american and latin american and asian-american and feminist approaches to romans all of a sudden you say how am i going to sort through all these problems created by all these brilliant scholars how can i make sense of romans so I've been on a quest for the last seven years to make Paul intelligible and accessible to more people and um, But I want to I want to begin by talking about the significance of Romans Uh, In the history of the church No book has had more influence No, New Testament book has had more influence than the book of Romans every theological treatise, every major theological study. I grew up when I was in college, I was a- exhorted to read a Baptist Systematic Theology by A.H. Strong, but I soon discovered Charles Hodge, and then along came a few others who um, made those books more modern and more accessible, and then we have one of the most recent ones is by my friend Mike Bird. But if you look at almost any of these theologies, ultimately they are anchored in the book of Romans. And I've I've heard it said that almost every major theological movement in the church was anchored in Romans. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Karl Barth, John Wesley, just name them. Evangelicalism Billy Graham's gospel is rooted in the book of Romans. So Romans is important How has Romans been read? I want to I want to take a look at what I call the conventional reading of Romans and then I'm going to suggest another approach to Romans to fill that out and to reshape re reframe and I think make Romans more accessible and more pastoral most people read romans forwards they begin in 1 1 and they read till the end of chapter 16 and it begins with um, with an argument for many people that paul wants to prove that gentiles are sinners he does that in romans 1 18 through 32 then he proves according to this reading that jews are sinners in romans chapter 2 he concludes that it's both Jews and Gentiles who are sinners all are under sin nobody's good and then in chapter 3 verses 21 to 26 the Apostle Paul shows that the solution to this problem of sinfulness is Jesus Christ's uh, redeeming death but this is received by faith and that's what Romans 4 is about so this has been the approach to Romans 1 through 4 and then for many people, Romans 5 through 8 was important, but the, the heat of the argument, the practical usefulness of Romans was done when people got through chapter 4, but they explored chapters 5 through 8 in terms of, uh, of an old model called sanctification. Today, many people would say that's not what sanctification means, but nonetheless, Romans 5 through 8 is more about how to live as a Christian. And It brings up things about the Holy Spirit. It brings up sin. It brings up death Uh, It actually Reworks some of the ground uh, that people thought was going on in chapters 1 through 4 and it's not just about Sanctification as that was traditionally understood, but that's what happened to 5 through 8 then people got to uh, The argument was that chapters 9 through 11 was about history Yes uh, But that's a difficult way of framing chapters 9 to 11 and then chapters 12 through 16 were understood as application So the burden of interest in Romans without any question was chapters 1 through 8 More emphasis on 1 through 4 uh, Justification redemption, etc Less emphasis on 5 through 8, but some people did emphasize chapters 5 through 8 Here's the problem with this reading. Most people don't get to chapter 9. They get worn out by the time they get there. And people have to admit this. And then they get really confused by chapters 9 through 11. I just read recently a book on Romans 9 through 11, which referred to the torturous logic of Paul in Romans 9 through 11. And then, let's face it, by the time people get to 9 through 11 through 9 through 11 they're worn out and they just kind of breeze through 12 to 16 as quickly as possible and then if you ask ordinary pastors to preach through romans you're asking for a monster series we all know the stories of people like martin lloyd jones and john piper who preached through romans for years Um, And a lot of pastors say my congregation is not going to take anything beyond eight weeks And if I go 16 weeks, I'm really pushing it So people wear out in the book of Romans and what do they do? They go to Galatians It's only six chapters and it seems simpler Furthermore What has happened in Romans because of all this discussion between the Augustinian or Reformation or old perspective and the new perspective and the apocalyptic approach and the participation approach and the more liberationist approaches is that far too often especially in the first three groups is that it has become abstract theology detached from real people theoretical but I want to contend that all of Paul's letters are contextually based Shaped by an apostle on a specific mission and hardly connected and very connected to the churches in Rome. But especially this letter emerges out of Paul's missionary activity and what we might call Paul's missionary polemics with opponents to his approach that sharpened his mind and gave him a tighter perspective. And so by the time he comes to Romans 1 through 8, he is putting together um, his best ideas his top 20 ideas as a result of his missionary work And so it is intense, but it is not simply abstract theology. Paul is not writing a systematic theology and my contention is that if we are worn out by the time we get to 12 to 16 we miss the entire context for this letter so i'm with a group of people who read romans and i have a book coming out i think it's coming out in june with baylor university press it's not heavily footnoted at all it's not long and it's called reading romans backwards and i think it will be an accessible college level And Seminary level readable text on the book of Romans and I think pastors will be able to read it and say um, I'm going to try to preach through Romans from this angle I believe we have to begin in chapters 12 through 16 first now I'm not saying that we have to read it backwards But that's what I do in, in the book is I think you have to study chapters 12 through 16 before you understand what Paul is actually doing in chapters 1 through 4 chapters 5 through 8 and chapters 9 through 11. If we read 1 through 11, and then discover what's in 12 through 16, we are misreading 1 through 11. So where do we begin? I encourage people to begin in chapter <laughs> of Romans. And chapter, and this is why, because now we get the actual people to whom this letter is being sent. And I I often say it this way, that it begins, uh, chapter 16, begins with Paul commending Phoebe. And so I say, I believe that Phoebe is the face of Romans, that the Roman house churches, which are mentioned in chapter 16, verses two through 16, that the Roman house churches first heard the message of Romans in, uh, at, in the face of Phoebe, who I believe probably was the letter reader, and I use that as a, lit- as a um, let's say, a heuristic device for understanding how to read Romans, is I, I, I think we need to say, how would Phoebe have read this verse? How, who would Phoebe have looked at when she read this? we all know people who get up in church on Sunday and read a passage from scripture and they've never looked at it and so they mispronounce jewish names and locations and and it just doesn't communicate phoebe could not risk this this is a letter written to a churches house churches a group of christians in rome some of whom were not at all convinced of Paul's approach and Phoebe had to read this letter to these Christians and try to persuade them of Paul's approach to let this letter speak and Phoebe would have had to look at different people now I believe that there are five house churches in mentioned in first Corinthians 16 I think five there probably were more but let's say five. That there were probably somewhere between 100 and 200 believers in Rome when this letter was written And that phoebe probably had to read this letter aloud In each house church And I don't know if she read it aloud all at once Or over a couple nights Maybe four nights Maybe three nights But I I think there could have been some people falling asleep uh, it's a long letter, and it would have been some, some probably some warm evenings. If you look at, Roma, at Romans chapter 16, verses 2 through 16, you will see that it is quite a mixture of people. There are Jews and Gentile, Jew and Gentile names. Now, we can't simply move from a Hebrew-sounding name like Mariam to a Jewish person, but it's quite likely. And we can't simply move from a Greek or a Latin name, like Archippus, or uh, um, the various names that are mentioned, like Patrobas, or Philologos, or Julia, um, Narkikos in Greek. Uh, We can't simply move from those names to, oh, that's a Greek, and that's a Latin, so that's a Roman, and this is Hebrew, so therefore that's Jewish, but pretty good idea that it's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles some really careful work has been done on these names by Peter like uh, by names like Peter Lampa and Robert Jewett to uh, conclude that there is a high concentration almost certainly of slave believers among the Roman house churches and then on top of this there are a lot of women mentioned who are clearly significant people in the house churches of rome now we have a little bit of flesh on who this audience is and we have in romans chapter 14 through 15 an amazing <coughs> conversation amazing set of categories where the apostle paul is um, Dialoguing or remonstrating and in polemics with a a group of people that he calls the weak and another group of people that he calls the strong. And it takes some unpacking, but I think we can discern that in the weak we are dealing with Jewish believers, um, and in the strong we are dealing predominantly with Gentile believers. The strong are called dunatoi, powerful and the weak are also called adunatoi, powerless or disempowered and those are terms that are as social as they are economic, as they are theological, as they are the right team and the wrong team. For Paul the strong evidently are people of high social status with privilege that can push uh, harder against the weak. The weak are probably less powerful, less social status, and this brings in another thing that we've learned, and I think that this is probably right, although there's some scholars that um, are 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 nervous about this, is that uh, Claudius expelled, I believe, mostly Jewish believers from Rome. Some of them, Priscilla and Aquila, ended up working with the Apostle Paul and then coming back. So Claudius, the emperor of Rome, expels Jewish believers from Rome. And while they are gone, the Gentile believers seem to have uh, seized or at least gained control. And they develop their own approach. They weren't so convinced of eating kosher, etc. And the apostle Paul then, uh, or or the Jewish believers, return. And when they come back, they discover uh, that... uh, that uh, the Jewish believe the Gentile believers have got a leg up on what's going on, and they're created tension between the weak and the strong. Now there's tension then, and I can't develop everything, but these are three points. But this this is the exciting thing to me about reading the Book of Romans. Uh, if we read it forwards, I am convinced that we will end up too often in abstract, theoretical, theological debates about the meaning of justification the time of justification uh debates about double imputation single imputation triple imputation we will get it lost in arguments about election and predestination and we will lose contact with real people this is a letter written by paul out of his own ministry to jews and gentiles who were becoming believers some of whom were rejecting what Paul, some Gentiles thought Paul was crazy, some Jewish uh, people thought Paul was crazy, that he is writing this letter to that kind of people and the whole letter from the beginning to the end is written to the context of the weak and the strong. What happens to Romans if we begin to read the from the beginning Knowing what's going to happen in Romans 14 to 15, we can bring in 13, 12, etc. Those things all have to come in, but we don't have time for that today. What happens to Romans 1 through 11 if we start with the assumption that Paul's eye and mind and letter, and Phoebe's eyes as she reads the letter, are concerned about the weak and the strong in Rome? and how they are responding to one another. They are so much attention that Paul urges them, and I have often said this, that the core of the book of Romans is found when Paul says in chapter 14, one, eat with one another basically, welcome one another without arguing. So the burden of the book of Romans is about getting Jewish believers and Gentile believers to eat with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and not argue about everything and not fight about food and not debate about dates and days and Sabbaths and new moons and not fight about these debates or these issues and to get along with one another for the sake of the mission of the gospel in Rome. What happens if we begin Romans this way? I'm going to give just a few observations about Romans one through four, Romans five through eight, and Romans nine through eleven, in just ten minutes. And I don't know if that's even possible. All right. So Romans one through four, I find this chat. I find this one to be the, the the section of Romans that I think has been most impacted by the what i call the soteriological reading beginning in one thinking that it's all about presenting the plan of salvation that it's trying to show that gentiles and jews are sinners and that what they need is salvation in christ and that it comes by faith i think this is the is the um, approach to romans that most ignores and quickly ignores the weak and the strong If you read Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 and don't think that there's a chapter division at 2-1 and read it through you will see a shocking turnabout at 2-1 because Paul has just described now listen he doesn't use the word you it's not like he's talking to Gentiles he's talking to somebody out there and he knows that the the person or the people That he's going to turn against in Romans 2 like what he has presented in 1 18 through 32. So when he gets to Romans 2 he starts speaking to someone he calls the judge. I think the judge is an embodiment of a certain kind of person connected to the weak who think the gentile believers should be following the Torah if they're going to be transformed into true uh, christ-like behavior um and i think they would have thought that would be conformed to the torah as well and then all of chapter two is pretty hot if you um if you read romans especially two through four circle or underline or mark or somehow designate all the questions that paul asks Think then of Phoebe in reading this letter publicly. If she pauses after every question, it gets really uncomfortable. The only other place Paul does this with this intensity is Romans chapter nine and 10, where he asks all these questions and just sort of pesters people. And if Phoebe is reading this letter publicly and she pauses with each question, she's really pushing hard, all right? Chapter 3 1 through 20 continues this debate I see romans now. This is this is not heretical. This is But I I believe this so i'm willing to live with it I believe romans 3 21 to 26 which is a fountain of delights For those who are interested in atonement theology and we have every reason to think that about this beautiful passage I believe it is a parenthesis because if you skip verses 21 through 26, you can read from Romans 3.20 and pick up in Romans 3.27 and never lose um, a beat. Paul, Paul is continuing to push hard against the judge who believes that Gentile believers have to follow the law to be fully converted and Paul pushes back against the weak. This is not an argument with Jews. This is not an argument about Judaism. This is an argument with a group of people in the Roman house churches who believe that the dunatoi, the strong, should be following the Torah if they wanna really get serious with God. All right, the other thing to observe is notice how many citations, how many times Paul alludes to, but. Explicitly cites or quotes or recites the Old Testament in this passage. Very noticeable. Very noticeable the number of questions. Very noticeable the number of Old Testament citations. So underline those Old Testament citations in a different color. Now I've got you underlined your Bible. All right, now Romans, we're going to run out of time here. Romans 5 through 8.
0: Okay, that's where we're going to stop. And uh, we're going to uh, take a look at um, the chapters uh, uh, three and four. And um, I want to first, before we kind of highlight that, I, I want to ask, um, that was helpful, wasn't it, the way he explained it? I tried to do my best to do it. But when it comes off the pen of the author himself, I think it, it's something that, gets a little bit clearer. So um, having said all of that, um, do you have any questions on anything that he presented? Probably when we return to this study after Lent, I'll show you a little bit of the second part of that webinar that deals with chapters five through eight, because that's what we'll finish up with on this study. Uh, So um, we'll come back to that at the apropos time. Uh, but do you have any comments or questions off of Scott McKnight's presentation as he was uh, giving his um, his method on understanding the book of Romans? Was that
1: book
0: written recently or was it? About, I, I don't know the exact copyright date. It's um, probably two, 2016, 2017 it's okay. a couple of it's a couple of years old, but um okay yeah, but it's a pretty recent book within the last five years for sure, okay yeah anybody else? And I don't think he has enough books oh yeah <laughs> you can see he has a a basement office right at his home, so <laughs> yep. all right. Okay, so let's try to make some sense of chapters uh, three and four. So now that you kind of understand what he calls a soteriological reading of the text, is the assumption that the reason Paul writes Romans is to get everybody to repent uh, of their sin, accept Jesus as their savior. That's the way most people will use the book of Romans. You've heard of the Romans road, um, you know, the four spiritual laws, some things like that. A lot of of tracts that have been published over the years have used the book of Romans in that perspective. And that's fine, but that's probably not the initial purpose that Paul had when he wrote the book. And I think if we understand that, then we can see why it is a bit difficult to put a cohesive uh, category that is often called systematic theology together using the material in Romans. There's just a lot of things that don't fit uh, into a concise systematic theology, even though that's what scholars tend to try to do. So if we use Romans 14 and 15, these two groups of people that he kept talking about uh, as the framing device for understanding the book of Romans, then one of the things that we can do is see that in Romans chapters 2 through 4 are primarily going to uh, address some principal questions that are very important to the people that would be on the Jewish side, or as as he calls the weak in the book. So you're going to notice down here, the questions are about Jewish privilege, about uh, their boasting of who they are, that they were God's chosen people, and then the father of the faith, Abraham. And this is all done by means of a of questions that you'll see on the next slide, but to get to it, I want you to uh, keep your thumb in Romans, and go back to the book of Deuteronomy, if you have your Bible in front of you there, I want you to go to chapter 32. Now chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is called the Song of Moses, and it rehearses a little bit the history of the nation of Israel, And it's interesting what Moses says in this uh, piece of poetry here. And I want to just show you a couple of verses because I think this pertains to where Paul is going in this section of Romans. I think he is establishing the faithfulness of God, which is what the Jewish people and especially Moses in this song says. So I want you to notice verse three chapter 32 it says I will proclaim the name of the Lord oh praise the greatness of our God he is the rock his works are perfect and all his ways are just keep that in the back of your mind a faithful God who does no wrong upright and just is he so the justice of God the faithfulness of God the dependability of God are all kind of put uh, forth in this song. So then when you read through and we're not gonna look at every verse here, but as you come down, I want you to notice, In let's uh, start at verse seven. It says, remember the days of old, consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain it to you. When the most high gave the nations their inheritance, When he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. And so he's talking about the promised land. He's talking about the dividing of the land among the tribes of Israel. And then it tells us how God looks upon these people that he has delivered out of Egypt. It says in verse 10, in a desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. So this imagery here is how the Jews thought of themselves. They are the apple of God's eye. They are the ones that have been delivered by this eagle that brought them out of Egypt and spreads its wings over to protect them, that type of thing. So keep that in the back of your mind when we look at the three questions that are going to be asked here in this section in Romans 3 and 4. So (laughs) there are going to be three questions. Let me go back here for a second. First is the question about Jewish privilege, second is the question about boasting, and third is the question about Abraham. So you can go on back to Romans chapter uh, 3 right now, and when you get there, you'll notice that each of these are, are uh, written as questions. So take a look at chapter 3 verse 1. What advantages? Uh, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision so what he's doing is he's asking the question and this runs through the first 26 verses of chapter 3 well what advantage is it to be a Jewish person if Gentiles do not need to keep the law they don't need to convert to Judaism uh, and all that type of thing so Paul is asking the same question in this chapter uh, in a variety of ways. So you'll notice here um, it can be asked, what advantage is the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Or if the Jews, if they are unfaithful in keeping the covenant with God, does then God nullify his faithfulness to them? Uh, Are the Jews really any better off than the Gentiles? Um, And Paul is pushing this point. Uh, So he will answer the question in the affirmative, yet there is an advantage to being a Jew because you had all of these resources at your disposal. So take a look at chapter three, verse one, what advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? And he says much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. The other nations can't proclaim that, that God actually revealed himself uh, through the prophets and and that type of thing. And then it, here comes the issue of justice and faithfulness. Verse three, what if some did not have faith? That is, what if some of the Jews did not keep the covenant? What if they had been uh, violators of this agreement? It's, now here's the, here's a crude, crucial question. Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Bingo. Part of what Paul is doing in chapters three and four is showing the faithfulness of God to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so he is talking to the weak that uh, somehow seem to think that those who keep the Taurus have a better standing before God than those that do not. So now he's going to go through this, and what he's going to do is try to show that even though they had all these advantages, yet at the same time they fell short of them, which is where this section comes in, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, all people are in need of God's loving forgiveness through Christ, and He's going to uh, become very aggressive in this. And when you read down through the first twenty-six verses, the questions that He asks and the um, the Old Testament texts that He recites here is really uh, very. Uh, powerful imagery that is being used. So first, before we get to that, here's the answer that Paul gives to this question. They have the Torah that was given to them on Mount Sinai, but Paul knows that human sinfulness, whether Jew or Gentile, has to be overcome by God's spirit, has to be overcome by God's forgiveness and love, and that will lead to life change And so basically he's trying to say that the Jews had an advantage because they got to know the one true God, the creator God. But um, in practical terms, they stand on the same footing as Gentiles because they have fallen short of of the glory of God. So let me pick out a couple of verses here as we look at this. Um, Notice the Old Testament text here. So If you have a study Bible and you look down at the footnotes section, you're going to see everything between verse 10 and verse 18 are Old Testament verses that have been quoted. Most of them are from the Psalms. And just listen to how Paul uh, cherry picks the Old Testament to really push this point home. He says in verse 10, there is no one righteous. Not, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And if that's not strong enough, listen to this. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. You want to talk about, I mean, this is heavyweight TKO type of punching that's going on here in this section, and um, there's a reason for that. These that he, he's called the weak, those that feel that you need to keep the Torah in some way, and I'm talking about ritualistically, because the quotations out of Psalms here shows that they have fallen short morally, just like the Gentiles. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that, you know, there are just so many ugly stories of uh, the waywardness of the Jewish people, uh, in spite of the faithfulness of God. And what we find here is, he pushes this home, so and here's the main point, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, and here's the purpose statement, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There is no one who will be declared righteous in the sight, His, his sight by observing the law. Rather, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul will make that point in Galatians. It's like the law just is like a mirror that's held up to our face and we can see all the the ugly, sinful zits that are on our face. Um, And that's right where Paul wants them because in bringing uh, the, the Jewish people and the Gentile to the same level, now he can spell out the free gift of grace that is being given uh, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. And that's down in verses 22 and following. He says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so he talks about this even footing that these two groups have. And I think it's all with a purpose in mind for them to be humbled to the point where they can start to look at each other across the table as brothers and sisters and strive to to get along and and have a life of peace together. Now, what Scott McKnight was talking about, uh, I don't know if you caught this or not. He said, you could read verses one through 20 of chapter three and this dense paragraph in verse 21 through 26, where it talks about things like justification and he talks about a sacrifice of atonement in verse 25 and all these type of things, you could actually jump or leapfrog over that paragraph and come right to verse 27, and you don't miss a beat because that raises the second question. The first one was, What advantage is there in being a Jew? Verse 27 says, Where then is the boasting? So why are you boasting? Okay, okay. let me stop there. Um, Does that make sense to you? Uh, Do you have questions or comments? Well, this dense paragraph in verses 21 through 26, he calls a parenthesis. I call it a rabbit trail. And what Paul does, he did. He's so amped up that now he gets into this section here where he waxes eloquence uh, on on how everyone comes uh, to God on the same basis through Christ and through uh, his justification, which is on the basis of faith, which he comes back to in chapter four. But. Um, Any thoughts there? Okay, so that brings it to the second question. The second question is, okay, what are we to do with your boasting? And that finishes the chapter. So in verse 27, he says, where then is the boasting that's excluded? On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is one God who justifies both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So, you know what Paul's saying here is, even though he had all of these advantages you have used them to set yourself apart as if you're better than the Gentiles, when in reality, all of these advantages were given to you so that you might reach the Gentiles with the good news, not that you would wall yourself off and, and in your pride, think that you're better than they are. So um, he talks about boasting, but not of self-righteousness, but because of the, uh, the mercy, grace, and faithfulness of God. And so that goes back to that Deuteronomy 32 passage where they just couldn't get it out of their head that they are the apple of God's eye and the rest of the world isn't. Does that make sense to you? So they had to swallow their pride a little bit. That's the first step in making them on equal footing. Thoughts there? Okay, then that brings us to the third question, and that leads us to chapter four. When you come to chapter four, it's all about Abraham. Why Abraham? Well, Abraham's the father of the Jewish people, so it goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to make you into a great family, and many nations will come out of your family. And I'm going to give to you a land, and you're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars up in the heaven. You know that uh, section out of the book of Genesis. But what Paul is going to do is in using Abraham more than the patriarch of a nation that came out of Egypt, he's going to use Abraham as the example, the ultimate example of faith who trusted in the promises of God. And so he will talk about Abraham's story, but the key to this whole chapter is when did God declare Abraham justified? That is one who is faithful. Well, it wasn't uh, prior it, it was it was prior rather to the giving of the law. In other words, he had this right standing with God even before the law was given in the book of Exodus. So it couldn't have been on the basis of the Torah. It had to be on the basis of faith alone. So let's take a look. Here's the third question. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's quoting Genesis 15, six. And then he goes on and he says, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. So when you went to work, your paycheck wasn't a gift, you earned it, okay? However, to the man who does not work, Okay, to the person that's been laid off, to the person who has been terminated and still gets a a check that that is something that is a gift. That's not something that's earned. And so he says, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Then he'll go back and he'll pull out another Old Testament scripture out of the Psalms and so forth. So as you look at this screen here, what he's doing is he's using Abraham as the example of faith. And he's making the point that Abraham is justified before the giving of the law. Now, in the mind of Jewish people, the ultimate example of Abraham's faith is demonstrated in Genesis 22, when he is willing to offer up this promised son, especially since they couldn't have a son for so many years. But notice there's no mention of the Genesis 22 story in this chapter whatsoever. So what Paul is doing is recalibrating for them the fact that the way Abraham is justified is not taking his son up to the mountain to sacrifice him, but by believing in the promises of God in the first place. So what we find is he's setting up kind of a two Torah type thing. That is the work, Torah of works, which leads to boasting, versus the Torah of faith, which leads to humility and righteousness and forgiveness and all those other things that come by way of God's grace. So the third question then centers in on Abraham. But what is else, what else is important about Abraham is the sign of that Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. So most Jews would say, yeah, Abraham is the father of our country, uh, our nation, and the proof that God and Abraham entered into a covenant together is by receiving the sign of the covenant circumcision. Well, what Paul does here is questioning circumcision is he's saying is that really the sign of the covenant and notice as you go down in the chapter he's going to make a point so come down to verse uh nine is this blessedness only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised we have been saying that abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness under what circumstances was it credited was it before he was uh, was it After he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. In other words, God considered him a follower, considered him faithful, considered him a covenant partner, even before circumcision was introduced as a sign of that covenant. So Paul's making the point that circumcision, while it was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's not the basis of the relationship at all. The basis of the relationship was on Abraham's faith. And ultimately, that becomes the basis for the Gentiles as well. So jump down to verse 16, where he says, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not just a certain section, the Jewish people. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant says, I'm going to make you into many nations. And it says, not only to those who are of the law, that is the Torah, but those also who are of faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. So his point in chapter four, uh, four, using Abraham as the example, is to uh, establish for uh, the reader, the listener, those that Phoebe is reading this letter to, that both Jews and Gentiles are both uh, a part of this Abrahamic covenant. The key to it is faith and trust in God, not all of the rituals uh, that were inst- uh, introduced later in the Old Testament that became front and center to the Jewish faith. Okay. So does that make sense to everybody? Let me stop this here and bring you back on full here. All right. So, um, that's where Scott McKnight was going with this um, this webinar that he was doing, and that's how it applies to the two chapters that we looked at tonight. When we get to chapters five through eight, what we're going to find is in that section that is so full of many different promises, as well as a very hmm, interesting passage in chapter seven, where... Paul um, is in struggles, Um, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I don't want to, you know, I do, you know, that whole idea there that he's a man that's been kind of tortured by his flesh, as he calls it in chapter seven. But that's, uh, we'll get to that later in the next uh, couple of lessons as we finish this study. But let's Come back to chapters three and four as we close off tonight. What questions do you have? Uh, What explanations or clarifications can I give you? Anything that comes to mind? No? So Paul's letter to the Romans, while it is critically important in the history of Christianity, at the same time it's very dense it's very complex and it's been misused in some ways to try to make theological points rather than seeing the ultimate purpose of what Paul is doing is a practical point of allowing brothers and sisters in Christ to get along so that the mission of the good news can continue beyond Rome and as we've said at the beginning to Spain as well. Okay. No questions? I guess that means we missed the boat. What do you mean?
1: If if the goal was to get all Christians to get along, there wouldn't be a thousand denominations.
0: Yeah, there's like a hundred thousand (laughs) different denominations. Um, You're so right. And I think that when you make everything in the Bible, or specifically the New Testament, all about who gets it right, who's figured God out, um, what you're going to do is actually exasperate the same problem that Paul is trying to fix (laughs) Uh, in the letter. And, I, and you're right. We have missed the point, haven't we? As we have misused the book in many ways and have not taken to heart the core uh, lesson or the core point that he's trying to make. And that is sit down at a table, enjoy your meal together, love each other, serve each other. Um, and that's the difference that uh, it will make in the world. That's what the world needs more than anything else, more than figuring out which subgroup is right. So, so good point. That's a very good point. Any other thoughts tonight before we end our time for t- this evening? Okay, so quick remem- uh, reminder, if you can make it out to church beginning next Wednesday, I think the... Uh, the fullness of the experience of the Lenten journey uh, and understanding the gospels portrait of Jesus uh, will be better experienced in person than watching it online. So I hope that you can make it out. And if there's anybody else that's on watching this online, you're invited each Wednesday for the next six weeks uh, at seven o'clock, we'll be in the sanctuary with a variety of things to try to, reinforce uh the lenten journey of understanding christ so right so we'll see you hopefully uh sunday okay have a great rest of the week okay good night Night. night.